Please turn to Ruth chapter 1, page 267 of the Church Bible. Ruth chapter 1. We thought about part of this chapter in our service this morning. We focused on Naomi and how when she returned to her home village of Bethlehem, life seemed very bitter for her. She lost her husband, she lost her two sons, she was destitute, she was a widow, she had no one to provide for, she had nothing. And she thought life was bitter. But we saw how God had great plans for Naomi, great plans for Ruth, great plans for the world through them. That through them he would bring his son into the world to save. And this evening we're going to look at the three women in the chapter. Naomi, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi, the Israelite and her two Moabite, two foreign daughters-in-law, as they return to Bethlehem, to Naomi's hometown. So we read all of this uh, chapter, page 267. <coughs> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. 
So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. End our reading of God's word there. Please turn to the book of Psalms again. Please open your Bibles at Ruth chapter 1, page 267 of the Church Bible. We're considering this chapter together, and especially verses 8 to 18, as Naomi and her two daughters-in-law return to Bethlehem. Picture the scene. Three women are travelling on the road. One of them is older than the other two. They're not carrying very much. They're walking in silence. And they come to a ford in a wide river. It's the border between Moab and Israel. Three women stand on the brink of entering God's promised land. For one of the ladies, for Naomi, it's home. She's coming back. She's been away for ten years. And she stands at that river. Perhaps her mind goes back to ten years previously. She stood on the other bank. That time she was there. She was leaving Bethlehem. Her husband had been with her. Her two beloved boys were with her. She was leaving Bethlehem for what she hoped, what she thought was a better life. Life had been good then. Full of hopes and dreams and prospects. And now her three men are lying cold and lifeless in graves in Moab. She's returning with nothing. And the other bank is God's country. The land where he dwells. The land where he blesses his people. The land of life and fullness and joy. In the distance the fields are golden. It's the barley harvest. People are beginning to go out into the fields to reap. Before them is a choice. Three women stand confronted by God's kingdom. How will they respond to God's kingdom? If you're here tonight, you too stand confronted by God's kingdom, by God's king, by God's rule. Tonight we've heard and sung that God is saviour and king. As we listen, we listen to his gospel, the good news about Jesus' rule. How are you going to respond to that tonight? The very fact that you're here means that you can't be neutral. You can't leave here without making a decision tonight. It's like we stand on the edge of the river just as those three ladies stood with a decision to make. We look tonight at those three ladies and their reactions. Will you react like Orpah or like Naomi or like Ruth? Where will you go? Look first of all at Orpah. Will you react like Orpah, turning back on God, turning back on God? Orpah standing at the riverside, 
She's been good enough to go with Naomi this far. Orpah is a good person. Naomi has nothing but praise for her. When she speaks of her in verse 8, it says, You've shown kindness to me and to the dead. She set out intending to cross the river. There is a certain level of commitment to going across. In verse 7, it says that they all set out to return to Bethlehem. Orpah has some love for God and for his people, some desire to be with them. Verse 10, she says, We will go back with you and to your people. And she's emotionally involved with God's people as well. Verses 9 and 14 we read of her weeping and crying with that great wailing which Near Eastern women are famous for. But, despite all that, whenever Naomi begins to apply a little bit of pressure to paint the scene as she thinks it'll be in Bethlehem, Orpah begins to waver. And then in verses 11 to 13, Naomi paints the scene even darker and Orpah makes up her mind to return home, to turn her back on God's kingdom, on his rule, on God himself. And in some respects, it's a common sense decision, isn't it? She's choosing her natural mother over her mother-in-law. She's choosing rest and peace in Moab over a long, difficult journey into Israel. She's choosing family over the strangers of Bethlehem. She's choosing probable contentment and remarriage over the hopeless condition in Bethlehem. From Orpah's position, it's a no-brainer. It's an easy decision. But the crucial point is in verse 15. When she returns to Moab, she returns to Moab's gods, to her gods, to Chemosh, her false pagan, child-sacrificing idol. And Orpah chooses Chemosh over God. And so she kisses goodbye to Naomi. She turns her back on God and turns to idols. And at this moment of decision, she kisses goodbye to hope, to life, to salvation, and she disappears, never heard of again. If you're not yet a Christian tonight, you're standing with Orpah on the Bethlehem Road. Like Orpah, you're faced with a life-changing decision, an eternity-defining decision. The very fact that you're here tonight under the sound of gospel preaching, worshipping with God's people, you're faced with a choice. God or idols, God's kingdom or your own kingdom. Life or death. And Orpah, she rejects God, walks off the pages of history. So no significance. That's what it'll be like for you if you make that decision tonight. Reject God and when you walk out that door you turn your back on life, on hope, on salvation. That's the choice you have today. Choice for life Chance for hope. Chance for salvation. Don't miss it. Why won't the Orpahs join? Orpah wanted the world too much. She wanted the prospects of Moab. The world's prospects. The settled, comfortable life outside God's kingdom. She didn't want the, the difficult trials 
of God's people that Naomi and Ruth would head back to. Orpah's decision shows that in her heart she wanted the things of this world. She wasn't following God for the sake of following God because she hungered and thirsted for God. She hadn't realised that he is the only thing that really captures someone's heart and desires and delights the heart. Orpah didn't want the widowhood, the difficulties, the trials that would come in Bethlehem. She couldn't see that despite all those difficulties, blessing would come. The blessing would come in those difficulties. Ruth and Naomi, they're on the, on the verge of life-changing blessing. They haven't a clue that it's ahead of them, but they're right on the verge of it. Broorpa has no hope. She doesn't see that. And she turns away. Maybe that's all you can see as you look at Christians. You see the trials, you see the ridicules, you see the mocking from friends and family, the whispers. You see them fighting sin and the hardships of saying no to temptation. The trials of trusting God when things go wrong. And you don't see all the blessings and the riches and the delights that come from knowing God. You don't see that the, the storehouse of blessing is filled to bursting point. And so Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye. Kisses goodbye to hope, to life, to salvation. It's never heard of again. If you walk out that door tonight without repenting, without turning from your sin, without trusting in Jesus, you run the same risk of wandering off into insignificance and meaningless. Will you be like Orpah, turning back on God? Or will you be like Naomi? Will you be like Naomi who was struggling but used by God? Struggling but used by God. Naomi sounds okay. Verses 8 and 9, she, she uses religious language. She says, go and God bless you and your people. But what she says in verses 11 to 13 betrays her heart. She says in those verses, go, you're better at home. You're not better off with God's covenant people, with those he loves. You're better off in the place where life is good and the prospects are good. Naomi tries her best to send Orpah and Ruth home. Verse 11, she says, Look, go, it's foolishness for you to come with me. And in fact, there's a hint of rebuke, there's a a curtness in her language that that, that they should even consider coming back with her. Saying, go, this is daft. She's probably at least 50. She's a senior citizen in her culture. She's certainly past childbearing. And when she says to them, there's no sons in my womb that uh, you should have. She uses a, an unusual word for womb. It, can, it means like the seat of feelings. The way we talk about our heart, we don't mean our feelings are literally in our heart, but that's where our feelings are. So the image we use. And she uses that same word. And she seems to be saying, look, I don't even have hope or, or desire to have children. And then and at the start of verse 13, she takes her argument into the absurd. She says, even if I desired to have children, even if I were to have kids tonight, would you wait for them? Would you wait for them to grow up and marry them? Would you wait another 15 to 20 years? Maybe seems like an odd 
argument to use. Why would the girls wait? Why would they not just go back to Bethlehem and marry some fine Bethlehem males? I'm sure there are plenty. Well, the author is introducing to us one of the key themes in the book of Ruth. One of the key plot points. A custom called leveret marriage. In Israel and God's promised land, the land was crucial. It was vastly important. Each family had their own plot. And that plot was never to leave that family. God had written it into law that that was their inheritance in the promised land. That was their stake in the kingdom of God. And he put in safeguards to prevent that land passing out of the family. So that family's name would never be lost from Israel. He said he had ordained in his law that whenever there were no heirs, then the nearest unmarried relative of the man who died should marry the widow and preserve that man's family line. Preserve the land in that family by fathering a child on his behalf. And so Malon and Killian, they died. There's no one to inherit uh, Elimelech and Naomi's land. And going back to Israel and into the, 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 uh, the people of God, they'd be expecting the nearest male relative to Elimelech to marry one of the widows and provide an heir for the family who would take on the land and keep on the name in God's people. Naomi's saying, look, my family is as good as wiped out from Israel. There's nothing for you. There's no one to take on our land. There's nothing for you, for you to have. I can't produce an heir. And if I were to be married, would you wait for heirs to come for you to marry? And to take on Elimelech's name? Naomi uses this custom, which is going to be so key in the book. She uses it to show how ridiculous and how absurd the idea of coming back is. Look, this isn't going to happen. <coughs> But the author is using it, it's introducing it here, to show us what will transform Naomi's fortunes. Because this custom is going to transform their fortunes. And so here's Naomi, and she's saying all this, she's, she's arguing, go back, there's nothing for you. She takes the argument into the absurd, even if I had heirs, would you wait for them? She's saying all this, doing her best to dissuade them. And she goes on and and in verse 13 she accuses God of botching up her life in all the ways that we thought about this morning. She's saying, look, if you come back with me, your life could end up as bitter as mine is, as unpleasant as mine is. And in verse 15 she seems to think that it's okay for Orpah to go back to her gods, to the false gods. Naomi is not... A great model here. A great example here. You see Naomi's thinking on the wrong level. Naomi's thinking of. What's physically best. What's materially best. For these young women. She wants husbands and hope and rest. An end from anxiety. An end from wandering. From the uncertainty. From the pain. She wants security. Permanence. Settlement. Marriage. She wants their happiness. But Naomi's not thinking of their spiritual happiness. It's not thinking about what they really need, of what will do them most good. So often we can look for these things as well. Rest, peace, a break, 
And all the while we miss what we really need. What we really need is God. To be near to God. And Naomi's behaviour, it's, it's cringeworthy. You, know, you read it and there's part of you who wants to scream, Stop it! Keep quiet, Naomi. You know it's far better for these women to be in God's people, with God's people, in God's place, knowing God's blessing. You're trying to send them away. Just stop! Stop putting your foot in your mouth. This is not how to do evangelism. One writer says, no matter how much she liked them, she could not have said more than she did to put them off coming back than if she'd found them irksome and burdensome and a pain in the backside. She couldn't have said anything more to put them off coming back. Yet, Naomi is one of God's people. So often we don't find ourselves like Naomi. Maybe you're very aware of your failures in evangelism. Things that you should have said. Times you didn't speak up. Things you just got totally wrong you said the wrong thing at the wrong time perhaps your faith is weak you're scarred by bitter experiences in life bitter circumstances oh make so many mistakes each day maybe you look at the christian life and just think there's so many things for me to get wrong every side pitfalls yet in all of these things god's hand is overruling In all of Naomi's words and actions, God's hand is overruling. And despite all her efforts, Ruth isn't going to return. Because God is overruling. And he has his purposes for Ruth and for Naomi. And it's through Ruth that God's going to bless Naomi. His hand overrules. It's like a little child making a cake and his mother's watching. And as he's making, he gets things wrong. You know, he reaches for the salt instead of the sugar. He tries to mix it, and he only mixes it a few times, and then tries to put it in the oven. He tries to open a tin with a knife. And all the while, mother's watching. And mother's helping and overruling. She steps in. She opens the tin for him. She takes the mixture and beats it well before it goes into the oven. Hands him the sugar rather than the salt. Gives him the right quantities. All the time she's watching, she's concerned, she's helping, she's providing. That's what it's like with our God. All the time he's watching, he's concerned, he's providing, he's overruling. But it's a poor illustration because our God is doing so much more than just intervening when we make a mistake. And so much more than helping us only when we're stuck. He's always helping. He's always overruling. He's always directing everything. And think of it, if, if a mother has that level of concern and care for a child, how much more has our Heavenly Father for his people? How much more does he love us and work for us and overrule our errors and our sins and our mistakes? Perhaps you're like Naomi tonight. You're hurting You're stung by the bitterness and the unpleasantness of life. You're blundering. Well, know this. You might be struggling, but you can be used by God. You can be used by God. Are you like Orpah, turning back from God? Are you like Naomi, struggling but used by God? Are you like Ruth, clinging to God? Just as it was for Orpah, Every incentive to go back to mother. It was the same for Ruth. Every incentive 
to go back to Moab. Her home was there. She had the opportunity to remarry. Naomi tells her that, well, religiously it's okay. You can worship the gods there. There's no chance for her to have a family in Bethlehem uh, with Naomi's family. She's going to be an outsider at Bethlehem. Not just an outsider, but a hated Moabite in Bethlehem. Orpah, well, she's going. In Bethlehem, there's all the shame of widowhood and barrenness. People whispering that God was judging that family and that they got their comeuppance, alienation, destitution. Naomi says to him, verse 13, look, I've ruined your life quite enough. Life was better enough since you joined me. But Ruth clings. Ruth clings to Naomi clings to God and the word that's used there is a term of commitment it's a marriage word it's a a lifelong commitment even beyond life Ruth says to Naomi where you are buried I will be buried I'm never going home and picture her clinging to Naomi and she loosens her grip for a minute and looks Naomi square in the face and says these remarkable words in verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Powerful, beautiful words of commitment. There's a poetic beauty about what Naomi says, or what Ruth says. Sorry, she she starts and she finishes with a command to the audiences. She starts with a command to Naomi, and 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 then ends with a command to the Lord. And then it's almost like a sandwich. Moving in, the next layers are two where phrases. Talks about locations. The I'll be with you in the lodging places. I'll be with you in the grave. Saying, everywhere you go, I will be. And then you've got the core. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. This is the heart of Ruth's commitment. She's clinging to God. Ruth was a pagan with a despicable past. As a Moabite, the Moabites were so despicable that they were barred from being part of God's congregation. But Ruth becomes an Israelite. Ruth becomes a true Israelite, believing in Israel's God, and now she's one of the people of God. Some of you, if you're not yet Christians, you're outside the people of God. You're in a pitiable position, just like the Moabites were. But if you recognise our God as your God, his people as your people, our saviour as your saviour, our king as your king. And if you come, he accepts you. He accepts you. You'll no longer be excluded from the love of Jesus, from the grace of Jesus, from the most delightful thing in the world, from knowing Jesus. No longer excluded. Orpah kisses goodbye. Ruth clings on to life and hope and happiness and salvation. Clings on like a limpet. Orpah pursues the the natural, easy course. Ruth determines to swim upstream against the current because she loves God. Leaves her people, leaves her God. Ruth recognises the surpassing value of knowing 
the Lord. And her faith, the faith of this young Christian, this, this young Moabite woman with no background in God's people, her faith surpasses the faith of Naomi. See, people with no church background, they're not second class citizens in God's kingdom. Often they even surpass those who've been sitting in the church pews for years and generations. Her faith comes at a great cost to herself. She leaves her people, her gods, her marriage prospects, her children. She chooses the harder path, the difficult route, knowing that no one will be there to provide for her. Knowing that she'll have the slur of being a widow, a despised moment, knowing she'll have no legal rights, and yet she makes a permanent commitment. It's no temporary measure. not saying, I'll stick with you until, until you die, Naomi. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. She's in it to the end, the very end, and beyond. She takes on a great risk. It's a risk of being rejected. Here's a, a hated Moabite widow coming in to God's people. It seems the foolish decision. Orpus seems to have made the right decision. Orpus forgotten about. Ruth's the one who's blessed and honoured even to this day. Do you recognise the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? Willing to accept the great cost, take on the great risk of following him for the hope, the certain hope of future blessing. Like Ruth, you stand on the edge with a big decision in front of you now. Will you say, your God, my God. Your people, my people. If you are a Christian, how is your hunger for God compared to Ruth's? How is your desire to know God and know his people? See, this is our greatest need, to be hungry for God. Be hungry to know him. That's our greatest need. It's easy to forget the things that we hear in church each week. The best intentions is it's not easy to take in everything from every sermon and to remember it and put it into practice. But as someone said to me once, we don't forget to eat. Why? Because there's a hunger that drives us. So coming to, to church and walking with God, it's not about doing things but being driven by a hunger to know him more. And that's our greatest need. That's our greatest need. You men who are elders here in the congregation, that should be your prayer for your people. Those of you who are parents, that should be your prayer for your children. Husbands, for your wives, for your Sabbath school classes, for the people you work with, for the people you live with, for your family, that they would be hungry to know God. It's a rebuke to us. What's been your priority this week? Has it been the New Year's party or the family gathering or getting back into the swing of things and work, having a good time? What's been your priority? Is it knowing God? Are you driven by a hunger to know Him and to know more of His power at work in your life? Are you not astounded by Ruth's love for Naomi? It's hard to believe. Ruth leaves her father's house and comes and lives with her mother-in-law in a foreign land and stays with her even to the point of death. Leaves all the comfort, all that's pleasant and behind and unites herself to one who has nothing, nothing to offer because she loves Naomi. 
What astounding love that is. And if Ruth's love is astounding, how much more the love of King Jesus. Ruth clings to Naomi when there's no reason to cling to Naomi. Jesus clings to his people when there's even less reason to cling to us. He left not the comforts of Moab and family and home. He left heaven to come to rescue his people. He left his father's house. He bonded himself to us, taking our nature, when the only thing on offer to him was emptiness and unpleasant bitterness and affliction, even to the point of death. Jesus says to you and I, wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people. My God is your God. And that's what he did for us at the cross. He earned us that privilege of being able to say, My God, your God. And the cross is a demonstration of this. It's the means of this. The cross shows us his love. It shows us how he clings to us. So as we close, how do you come to church tonight? How are you going to leave church tonight? You're going to be like Orpa. Everything looking okay on the outside, but inside, you're not one of God's people. You want the comforts and the pleasures and the privileges of this world and all that it offers, rather than God's kingdom. Tonight, you've been confronted by the gospel and the cross of King Jesus. You have a choice. On one side of the river is living under God's blessing. Knowing him with his people. God's rule in your life. You're going to be like Orpah and turn away today. You disappear into insignificance like Orpah. You're going to be like Naomi. One of God's people but struggling. So what you're like tonight. Do you feel like a Naomi? One of God's people but struggling. Well this gospel and the cross of Jesus is for you. He died for you. He's committed to you. He clings to you. And he uses you. He delights to use. Bent sticks like you and me. Holds on to us. He clings to us. Are you like Naomi? Are you like Ruth? It's because of the cross. That people like Ruth. Can come. It's because of his broken body. And shed blood. That we can come. And it's in Jesus. And it's in knowing Jesus. That the hungry Ruths feed. So as we finish tonight. As we sing praise together. As we worship together. As we raise our voices together. As God's people. We commit to each other. And we say to King Jesus. And we say to each other. Where you go I go. Your people. My people. Your God, my God. Amen. So let's do this as we worship together, as we make this commitment. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who rescues people like Orpah, those who have turned from you, who are far from you, who deserve to perish for their sin and rebellion. We thank you that you have saved us. And Lord, if there are any in our midst tonight who, who are in danger of being like Orpah, of turning their back and 
the gospel and your rule in their lives. We pray that you would stop them. And you would make them like Ruth. That they would cling to you as their God. And to your people as their people. Thank you that you are the God who turns us into Ruth's. And we ask that you give us a greater hunger and desire to know you and to know uh, the power of uh, your your power at work in our lives. We thank you that you're the God of the Naomi's, those who are blundering and struggling and getting it wrong, and yet you're holding on to them by their right hand, and you're pleased to use us. And so as we go into this week, with all of our sins and our faults and our blunderings and our mistakes, Lord, please be pleased in your mercy to use us for the sake of your kingdom and for your purposes. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.